You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's have a few facts, then the legend, then a few facts. Okay, the facts. There was a king. A king Tutankhamun. An Egyptian pharaoh in the 18th dynasty. Which is more than 3,000 years ago. That much is true. As is this, King Tut died and was mummified. And then he was forgotten. Until the 1920s, when he was discovered again. Now, the legend. When the king was mummified, a curse was placed on his tomb. It would besiege anyone who disturbed the sarcophagus. What's this? Those who broke the seal were doomed to die soon after. Take Lord Carnarvon, an amateur Egyptologist. Let's just take a peek. In the early 1920s, he sponsored the search for Tut's tomb, and he went to Egypt to examine it with his hired hand, Howard Carter. They opened it, and a few weeks later, Lord Carnarvon died. Wait, that part is true about him opening the sarcophagus and dying. Because of the curse of the pharaohs. Uh, now we're back to legend. These pharaoh guys are tricky. They can reach from beyond the grave and punish those who would disturb their eternal rest. Of course, they didn't realize they would enjoy a rebirth about three millennia later when they were immortalized in film. Warning! of the mummy's tomb. Beware. They were not only the source of an accursed curse, but could rise up and come after you. The terrifying story of a rampaging bandage and bone monster stalking those who defiled its tomb of terror. You know, when they finished those mummy films, the director would say, that's a wrap. I'm pretty sure that's how the term got started. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking. This episode, Mummy Dearest. And back to the facts. Classical Egypt, it had a long history, thousands of years, even longer than the Roman Empire. And it was a wealthy country because this was a rich agricultural area thanks to the flooding in the Nile. It was easy to defend because it was all along this river. It was a one-dimensional country. And it had a dynasty of kings called pharaohs, and they had a whole belief system of life after death. So death wasn't the end. It was just the beginning of your next life. And these kings spent a lot of time thinking about what they would need to take with them to the next world. My jewels, robes, sandals, you know, in case it remains hot, my gold cat amulet, my chariot, and some beer. Wait a minute, they put a full chariot in the tomb? Well, yeah, they would do that. Anything they thought they needed for the next life, and they crammed a lot of stuff in there. No baggage restrictions for these guys. Well, what we take might be different today. I got my smartphone loaded with photos of my gold cat amulet and some beer. Anyway, so the deal was that for these Egyptian kings... Death was an important thing. Well, what about for regular Egyptians? Well, they were concerned about the afterlife, too, and they'd even be mummified if they could afford to do that. Anyway, these pharaohs didn't want to be forgotten even when they were dead, so they built these famous pointy buildings as tombs. Now, at first, they weren't pointy, just big rectangular structures called mastabas. But then one pharaoh said, I want something a little bigger, so they stacked one mastaba on top of another, and, well, you can imagine, another pharaoh wanted a yet bigger one, so they stacked another mastaba on top of that until, well, eventually, you get a pyramid, a, a step pyramid, but they would smooth the sides. Okay, so what happened to the pharaohs? Well, they were putting crypts inside the pyramids and were all sealed up because they didn't want grave robbers to steal the goods. So did that work? No. Virtually all these pyramids were robbed 
almost right away, it turns out that a pyramid is just a big neon sign that says, Get your ancient Egyptian relics here. We got grains, we got cat amulets, we got chariots, and there is gold everywhere. There's a bunch of valuable stuff here, folks. Just look for the pointy building. So future pharaohs decided they wanted to be buried somewhere else, someplace safer, a place that eventually became known as the Valley of the Kings. It's just a rocky canyon. It's a gulch, really. Nothing special. They would put them all into underground chambers there. And if you walked in there, you, you wouldn't know where to dig to, to find the good stuff. Okay, so did that work? No, that didn't work either. Almost all the tombs were vandalized, but not all. Not King Tut's. And, and that brings us to the opening of the tomb, because things only got stranger after that. Joe Marchant is the author of The Shadow King, The Bizarre Afterlife of King Tut's Mummy. But before there was his mummy, there was a living king. And to borrow from Butch Cassidy, who was this guy? Very little was known about him. He comes from quite a mysterious period in Egyptian history. Um, his predecessor, Akhenaten, had thrown out Egypt's traditional religion and was very controversial. So subsequent pharaohs basically tried to write this period out. So people had just about heard the name of Tutankhamun, but apart from that, very little was known. Okay, so uh, when he died, and he died at what age? He was quite young, right? He was about 18. Yeah, well, that's pretty young. And now flash forward 3,000 years <laughs> to 1922, and along comes this guy with a nifty-looking hat, Howard Carter. Uh, was he specifically looking for Tutankhamun? Was he looking for King Tut, or did he just sort of stumble on that? He was looking for King Tut. So there's this valley called the Valley of the Kings where the pharaohs of Tutankhamun's time dug their tombs and lots of these royal tombs had been found but they were all empty they'd all been looted in antiquity there was just some sort of scattered broken things on the floor and that was about it even the ones that had been buried for thousands of years and so most people thought there was nothing to find but Howard Carter he was the only one that thought no Tutankhamun's tomb is here and he spent about six years looking for it. Okay, now the subtitle of your book is The Bizarre Afterlife of King Tut's Mummy. Uh, I don't think you're talking about a reincarnation of this <laughs> pharaoh, or, or maybe even his curse, the curse of the mummy, but that's very well known. People who know nothing about Egypt have heard of the curse of the mummy, maybe because there were movies made with that title. Where did that come from? The curse came about because Lord Carnarvon, who was the guy paying for Howard Carter's excavation, so the two of them were in this together, he died shortly after the tomb was discovered. So this tomb was worldwide news. It was a huge story when it was discovered. It was the first ever pharaoh who'd been found intact in his tomb with incredible treasures. And so all the newspapers were desperate for stories about it. And then this guy dies suddenly. And so there had already been a few sort of short stories and the kind of the idea of mummies avenging themselves. And so the two got put together and it became the curse of King Tut's mummy. But what I really love about the curse is that it's changed over time. So when King Tut was first discovered, it was all about evil spirits and everyone thought it was ghosts had killed off Lord Carnarvon. There were serious discussions in the newspaper about whether this is what would happen. But later on, by the 1970s, for example, it was all about alien technology and had the Egyptians made laser guns and booby-trapped the tomb with cyanide and this kind of thing. Um, and then by the 1990s, it was all a little bit more scientific and it was much more about, was it a deadly fungus who'd killed off Lord Carnarvon? So I, I really love the fact that it's changed depending on what society believed at the time. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I think if I'm going to be done in because I sent an explorer into Egypt, uh, the idea of aliens doing it would appeal to me anyhow, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem very very rational. Well, what happened? Okay, so they discover this, and as I recall, Carter looks into this tomb and says something about seeing wondrous things or whatever, but then they get in there and they actually do what? I mean, did they take the body out? Did they run an autopsy? What happens? Yeah, it took them a while to get to the body. Um, Howard Carter was really the first to do a quite scientific excavation of the tomb, and it was absolutely jam-packed full of stuff. It was quite a small tomb, and you just you literally couldn't get in the door, and it was all very fragile. It had also been looted in antiquity, so there was a lot of stuff that was all sort of scattered all over the floor. Um, so it, it took them, let me see, it was discovered in 1922. They didn't get to the mummy until 1925. So that gives you a sense of how long it took. But then, yeah, they did an unwrapping and they did an autopsy. And they found, I think it was 130-something items of jewellery that were sort of all wrapped up in the bandages. And then had a look at the body itself to see if they could tell anything about you know, the age, the cause of death, that kind of thing. What did they do with the body? I understand that was fairly, uh, I don't know, brutal, really. Yeah, um, 
Compared to previous studies of these mummies, it wasn't actually so bad. I mean, previous royal mummies that had been discovered, none of them in their original tombs, but some of the mummies had been found. I mean, they'd be unwrapped in like 15 minutes flat and the entire thing left as an exploded mess all over the floor with no records taken. So at least with Tutankhamun, his autopsy took eight meticulous days. Um, so that was quite good. But they faced a problem. This is Douglas Derry, an anatomist who worked with Carter to do the autopsy. And um, all of the resins that had been poured over Tutankhamun when he was buried had set completely solid and so he was basically glued inside his solid gold coffin and his solid gold mask was glued on top of that so they had no way of getting the mummy out basically because they were very interested in recovering this coffin without just cutting him into pieces and scraping him out with knives so we see pictures of the mummy now and he looks kind of in one piece but he's really not (laughs) the parts held together were they able to determine the cause of death i mean 18 years of age I, I read somewhere that your average lifespan in ancient Egypt was something like 25 years, but I think that as a pharaoh, you probably had a better lifestyle than the average Egyptian. What causes a guy to die at 18? Yeah, he definitely died prematurely. And and this is one of the things that I was interested in looking at is the history of all of the scientific studies that have been done on the mummy over the 90 years or so since it was found because every study comes up with some theory or other about how he died and it's different every time. So I really wanted to look at the evidence and try and work out what made sense and what didn't. Okay, and, and did they ever come to a conclusion? I mean, more recently, have they been able to do, I don't know, DNA analysis? Have, have they done any forensics to establish the cause of death or is it just we don't know? Lots of teams have done forensics and they all want to know how he died and they're always followed by a team of television cameras who are making a documentary. All of the research is basically paid for by television companies and that's what determines the work that gets done and everybody wants to know how did he die. Um, so he was x-rayed in the 1960s, for example. That's when they did a sort of another post-mortem. And that was, I don't know if you've ever heard the theory that King Tut was murdered. That's where that idea came from. The um, the guy that looked did the x-rays thought he saw signs that he'd been whacked in the back of the skull. And that was a theory for a long time until more recently a team did CT scanning in 2005 and decided that he hadn't been hit in the back of the head after all but they did find that he had a broken leg so then it was well maybe he fell out of his chariot or something and then the brake got infected and then there was a reanalysis of those studies where they thought that actually that he had a club foot and was he a cripple and then DNA testing suggested that maybe he had malaria did that kill him off but then since then other people have said well we don't believe those DNA results so it's a very tangled tale. Well, this really was a golden age of discovery for Egyptologists, I suppose, because there were still major finds to be unearthed. And there's something about ancient Egypt that seems to appeal to us. I don't quite know why. I get emails every week from people who are convinced that certain hieroglyphics give evidence that the Egyptians were in contact with aliens or whatever. There's something very mysterious about that culture. Is there any real explanation for that? Is it just that... People dug up body-wrapped kings, and so there's all this romance associated with this society. No, I completely agree with you. There's something about ancient Egypt, and I think King Tut kind of focuses all of that as well. People get so excited about it, and it's kind of changed. So initially it was this amazing treasure. I mean, just to find that amount of gold from the ancient world, like his coffin was the by far the biggest piece of gold that had ever been discovered. There's also, at the beginning, they were trying to prove the truth of the Bible. I mean, this Tutankhamun was living, you know, at the same time as certain stories from the Old Testament. So people were were very interested in trying to find sort of independent corroboration for some of these stories. Um, But then, obviously, there you've got the story of the curse. And I've already said that's kind of changed. Depending on what people are interested in at the time, it kind of morphs itself. And there's something about Tutankhamun as well. I think because he's so mysterious people can kind of project whatever they want onto him. You can tell any story you like about King Tut, really, or how he died, or um, what his ancestry was, and it's very difficult to prove you wrong, so people do kind of tend to latch onto him. Yeah, and it also appeals to our fear, everybody has this fear of death. I mean, the, the Egyptians had a treatment for that. <laughs> they, they, they had addressed this problem of death, at least for their pharaohs, because the idea, of course, was that King Tut wasn't dead and gone. He was dead, but he wasn't gone in some sense. He, he existed elsewhere on the other side of a river or wherever he was, and he had all the stuff he was going to need. And maybe that appeals to people, the idea that maybe there's a way out of this. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, there's this ancient civilization, and they're all basically still around here for us to look at them. And you get to know the 
the characters, this royal family, we have all of their mummies and you can go and see them in the museum in Cairo and look into their faces, look into their eyes. They become real characters. You feel like you can get to know them. And the religion as well. I mean, I'm not religious myself, but there's something very attractive about this idea. I mean, that Tutankhamun believed that he was going to become one with the sun god and ride through the heavens every night. And I, I just think that that's um, it's quite beautiful. In, in the Egyptian museum in Cairo, there's this jackal, and it was found in Tutankhamun's tomb. And it's a representation of Anubis, um, one of their gods who looked after the dead souls during their passage into the afterlife. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful, this sort of black glossy jackal with these big ears and a long nose and kind of golden eyes and silver claws you know you just look at it and you just think oh that's the kind of guardian that it would be nice to have after death uh, finally joe you must be very popular at parties uh, <laughs> and and people might ask you know look there were a lot of pharaohs in ancient egypt why king tut of all the egyptian pharaohs why has he become pharaoh number one yeah, it's ironic, isn't it? Because he died so young, so he wouldn't have been a major pharaoh at the time, and his tomb really isn't that big. But it's because he was found with all of that treasure, I think. You know, it's an intact tomb. We saw him as the Egyptians buried him, you know, as a royal buried in, in state, and that was just such an amazing thing to see. Joe Marchant, thank you so much for talking with us. <laughs> thank you. The Shadow King, The Bizarre Afterlife of King Tut's Mummy is Joe Marchant's book. As she said, King Tut's tomb is best known because it was best preserved, and preserved with it was the legend of the curse of the pharaohs and a whole mythology about how mummies were made. Next, the origin of the curse idea and how to embalm a dead king, one of your more ambitious DIY projects. It's Mummy Dearest on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know, when you walk near the pyramids outside Cairo, there's a whole complex of buildings that were devoted to embalming. Now, you've been there, right? I you've have, seen these yeah. buildings. What, what does it look like? Well, I mean, they're quite old, so there's not much left. It's just sort of shells. But, I mean, they're kind of a colonnade, I mean, with all these, you know, pillars and so forth. I, it, it's just a lot of structure that suggests to you that this embalming was a big deal. It was a very complex process. Because they would have had a lot of bodies there at one time. I, I suppose. Either a lot of bodies or just a lot of embalmers working on a small number of bodies. I couldn't tell. But it's clear that being an embalmer was a good career choice back then. Well, much about what we know about this process comes from the Greek historian Herodotus, although some of his ideas about how mummies were made are misleading. For example, how the organs were removed exactly and whether or not the heart was left in place. Now, our ability to correct the first and ancient source of knowledge about the Egyptian world comes from a second source, which is modern-day Egyptology. Q. Andrew Wade, who's a physical anthropologist at McMaster University. To figure out how mummies really got that way, he and his team poured through 150 ancient written accounts of mummification. But then he gave a half dozen actual mummies the eye, not the evil one, but that of contemporary imaging instruments. So for those of you who are looking to branch out from making peach preserves on the weekends, here's a different kind of preservation project. We're about to tell you how to mummify correctly. But first, we thought we'd check to see whether Jo Marchant herself was accurate in the explanation of how mummies are made. So we ran her description by Andrew. Here's what Joe said. Well, all their organs get taken out, basically. So they would stick a wire hook up your nose and whisk around your brain and pour that out. Um, they would cut a hole in your abdomen, take all the organs out, um, basically anything that's going to decompose, stuff in loads of salt and oils and resins, make it all smell lovely, leave it for a while to dry out, and then wrap it up in linen. Andrew, you just heard Joe's description of mummification. You know, pull the brain out through the nose, whisk away the brain, whatever, pull the organs out through your stomach. Is this an accurate account? Um, it's an accurate account for some mummies. The most elaborate one involved removal of the brain, um, removal of the internal organs through a, a slit in the abdomen. 
uh, as she said, and and then a whole lot of packing of linens and resins and and so on in the body after it had been dried in, in these natron salts. But not all mummies had their brains removed. Some had them left in. Not all mummies had their organs removed, or all of their organs for that matter. They didn't necessarily have them removed through an incision in the abdomen. So there's a lot of variation that we see in mummification in ancient Egypt. Well, when it comes to the mummification process, we have the word of Herodotus. That's a 2,000-year-old word, but he was an historian, I guess the first historian, actually. And he's described the, the mummification process. What's wrong with that? Well, as I said, not all mummies had their brains removed. One of the other things he mentions is, is this idea of treating the body with a cedar oil enema to dissolve the internal organs. And we don't see any evidence of that in the mummies that we're, we're looking at. What it may be, actually, is that he's describing a process that we used on an animal mummy, a very specific animal mummy, which is these large uh, bulls that were associated with a, a cult of the bull. And the description of their embalming was using a cedar oil enema. So what it may be is he's sort of equated a lower class person's option to be mummified with the option that they might use for an animal. And that cedar oil enema, as pleasant as it sounds, what was the function of the cedar oil? Well, the cedar oil was intended to dissolve the internal organs. We're, we're a little loose on the translation, but it would be something like turpentine, basically. And, and that was intended to dissolve all the internal organs, and then they would come out uh, neatly. Unfortunately, it would dissolve the internal organs. It was also also dissolve some of the, the skin and, and make rather a mess of the mummy. Clearly, there are a lot of myths about mummification. I guess that's the result of popular culture, movies, and whatever. What is the most prevalent misconception about how you mummify somebody? Oh, my favorite has got to be one that came up when we were doing the initial research looking at how the organs were treated. Um, and that is that time after time, we were seeing news pieces where they were reporting strangely the heart was absent or mysteriously the heart was missing. And it turns out it's not actually that uncommon for the heart to be missing. Uh, quite the opposite. The study I was doing, we looked at 150 mummies in the literature, and only about a quarter of those still had their hearts. Now, this is an important organ for the ancient Egyptians, because this is the they don't conceive of their brain as being the center of their intelligence, but their heart as the center of intelligence and emotion. Okay, so what you're saying is that while there's this idea apparently promulgated by Herodotus a long time ago that these mummies didn't have any hearts, uh, they actually do. They don't remove them in most cases or some cases or just at the whim of the mummifier. No, the, ancient, uh, the, the classical idea is that the heart should always be left in there. That's what we get from the ancient authors. But we see only about a quarter of mummies keep their hearts. And it looks like this is more on the side of the elites. So the pharaoh and the nobles, uh, maybe some of the richer of the sort of middle class, but your average commoner is being uh, mummified. And they're being mummified in really great numbers by the new kingdom, by Tut's time. And those commoners are not retaining their hearts. They don't seem to want the brain intact at all. And that's largely, it appears, because the Egyptians didn't have any conception of the brain as an important organ. If we look at the hieroglyphics, there's a little symbol in the word for brain that is representative of a discharge, mucus. <laughs> I guess it would if you just took it out of the body like that. Now, you've looked at a lot of ancient mummies, more than 100. What does a 3,000-year-old body look like after you uh, peel off the wrapping? I mean, that, that sounds like a pretty exciting thing to do. Let's just, let's just unwrap this guy. What do, you, what do you see? Thankfully, we don't do that anymore, at least not physically. It was certainly all the rage in, in the Victorian period to, to have a mummy from Egypt and have these sort of public unwrappings at your home or in theaters. And uh, we lost a lot of mummies thanks to that, unfortunately. Today, our focus is on non-destructive examination of, of mummified remains. So we employ all the latest and greatest technology, medical imaging, and any sort of micro-sampling that we can do for, for chemical tests. Basically, we want to maintain the mummy in as normal a form as possible. So you're using a lot of modern imaging technologies, uh, uh, CT scans, 3D reconstruction, and so forth. What have you learned? If I, you know, were sitting next to you at a dinner and said, oh, you looked at a lot of mummies with these techniques, what, what have you found? Uh, well, we, uh, we treat them first on a case-by-case -case basis, and we want to know things like what we call an osteobiography, so what the bones and the, the 
remains can tell us. So how old was this person? Were they a man or a woman? What station in life did they hold? And really get a sense of, of what life was for them. Did they suffer from any diseases? And do that on an individual basis. And then when we gather all that information together, then we can look at larger trends in the society. So uh, the ways in which the mummification tradition evolved. Uh, there's a group in the States, the Horace Group, looking at how atherosclerosis appears in mummies and whether or not the, the modern risks in heart disease are what we think they are. That is, you know, the ancient Egyptians weren't eating McDonald's and smoking cigarettes, but they are showing hardening of the arteries in the same way that modern populations are. And so... That turns our attention away from not as much the, uh, the environmental factors as simply it's a process of age. Got to ask, Drew, did you ever do a CAT scan on a cat mummy? Oh, absolutely. We, did, uh, we do cats, we do birds, we do, uh, they do crocodiles. All sorts of mummies were, uh, animal mummies were made by the ancient Egyptians. Well, finally, Drew, is there anything in the mummification process that would suggest to you that after 3,000 years these bodies from the past could rise up and start chasing tomb raiders? <laughs> no. No, we're not going to see any, uh, any mummy attacks anytime soon. Um, they're, for starters, they're, they're far too well bound up to, uh, to, to move around, even if they were animated. <laughs> Drew Wade, thank you so very much for talking with us. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Andrew Wade is a physical anthropologist at McMaster University. Okay, Tutankhamun taxidermy aside, what everybody really wants to know is, what about the mummy's curse? Who dares waken me from eternal slumber? Take that! And since I'm awake, uh, could somebody get me a cappuccino, please? Okay, I mean, so what's the deal here? I mean, these guys have had all, or at least most, of their organs taken out. They're wrapped tighter than an airport sandwich. They've been hanging around, well and truly dead, for more than 3,000 years. So, really, could there be some pernicious pathogen on their corpses just lying in wait for the next guy to walk through the tomb door like a dog waiting for its owner? Except that in this case, it's an evil spirit dog. Well, we're doubtful about the existence of mummy curses, but the idea of them has been around for a long time, almost as long as we've been mesmerized by mummies themselves. Salima Ikram is a professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo. Salima, why are we fascinated by mummies? I mean, we like dinosaur bones too, but we don't feel terror in the face of dinosaur bones. Well, I, I don't know. I'm quite terrified by T-Rex. But people are fascinated by mummies because they are ourselves, but other. And I think there's also that whole hideous Hollywood gruesomeness thing, and the idea that somehow these people might come to life and be able to tell you a tale or else terrify you. So I think people continue to be mesmerized by mummies even today. Yes, well, in some sense, I guess uh, we look into our future when we look at a mummy, or at least a possible future, a kind of bizarre one. A very bizarre one, but cryogenesis might be the answer. <laughs> well, what about for Egyptologists? I mean, for you, presumably, the interest goes way beyond that generated by seeing a uh, matinee some Saturday afternoon. Well, yes, I mean, mummies are not just something that are a bit bizarre and sometimes gory, um, in a dried-up sort of way, but they are also really a insight into the past because where else can you read about King Tutmosis III, for example, and look at his the temple that he made, and then you can actually go and visit him in the museum. I think it telescopes time. It gives us a sense of intimacy with the people who lived in the past in a way that no other object can because here you can really look upon the face of someone who lived 4,000 years ago and have that moment of connection, which is very intimate. It's kind of a time machine, really. Absolutely. Very much a time machine. The Egyptians were very concerned with death. I mean, everybody's concerned with death, but they, they had a whole a ritual to deal with people that had died, at least if they were important people, the mummification process and so forth. And all of this was preparation for an afterlife. Can you describe for me what that afterlife was thought to be? Well, the reason that the Egyptians spent so much time on death is because they were really obsessed by life. And the afterlife, which was really an extension of this life, except better. 
so that you could have, you know, more food, more drink, a much better house in the afterlife than you did in this one, um, was a real turn-on for the ancient Egyptians. And I think so. they spent so much time on this industry because they wanted to have a better eternity than they had a current life. So did the Egyptians believe in a soul? Was there some part of our existence that was thought to make this trip into the future? Or did, you know, the whole body go? Well, for the ancient Egyptians, it was very complicated because who you were had five parts. So it was your body, your shadow, your name, and different aspects of the soul. So when you were taken from your embalming place to the tomb, that was at the point where all of these parts got together again and um, would be reborn in the afterlife. You would be refused together. And, And that happened more or less immediately as far as they could tell? Well, basically what happens is once you die, 70 days are taken from mummification when you're in some kind of limbo. After that, there's a ritual called the opening of the mouth ritual, which reanimates the body and the soul and everything, you know, comes together. And so the potential for going on in an active way in your afterlife happens at that point. And what about all the material goods they took with them, the things that would fill the crypts that were dug up so so frequently, actually? I mean, was the idea that this future life, as good as it was, there were just no material things there? Oh, well, the future life was very good, but you had to equip yourself. So it wasn't like when you go to heaven, God has provided X, Y, and Z. When you go to heaven or, you know, the afterlife in ancient Egypt, that's why they spent so much time equipping the tomb or decorating it. Because by putting these things in, they were guaranteed to have them in the afterlife. But they also believed that pictures counted and pictures could magically animate in the afterlife. So if you couldn't, you know, afford 500 gold bangles, but you wanted to wear them, you simply painted them on the wall of your tomb. And presto, when you got to the afterlife, you could wear them. So it was a combination of having this imagery that would magically come into reality, as well as putting all the goodies, like those that were found in the tomb of Tutankhamun, so that that would come together and you would have an afterlife. My goodness. Well, sort of a parsimonious future. I mean, you bring your own equipment, but on the other hand, it didn't have to be the real thing. It could just be a picture. And magically, the picture would become the real thing. I want to talk about where the idea of a curse first came from, because a lot of the public thinks that this was born after Lord Carnarvon died, after attending the opening of a tomb. I've also read that there was a novelist of the 19th century, a woman who who wrote about the dangers of uh, being associated with opening up one of these pharaoh's tombs. Is this curse something of recent times, you know, in the past 100, 200 years? Well, yes, actually, a lot of the curse idea came up after Tutankhamun's tomb was found. It was probably made up by a journalist who was angry with the fact that Carter and Carnarvon would only give the Times exclusive interviews about what was going on. And so they had to make up a lot of yellow press. And then when Carnarvon died, they had this big brouhaha about the curse of the mummy. And that really seized popular imagination. And of course, there were books that had been written earlier on that talked about curses. And in fact, some Egyptian tombs do have curses, but they're more things like, if you come in and desecrate my tomb or come in an impure state, I will seize you and break your neck like that of a bird, and the gods of the high council will judge you. Okay, but that's understandable. I mean, that's just to discourage vandalism, isn't it? Absolutely. Okay, so that's a slightly different curse than the idea that there's something really pernicious, something malevolent in there. You mentioned Lord Carnarvon, and of course he and Howard Carter opened up King Tut's tomb. Uh, Did, in fact, Carnarvon really open the tomb? Was he there when, when Howard Carter first found King Tut? No, he was the second. Carter found things and probably cracked it open to check, and then Carnarvon was there as well for the major opening. I mean, people are not entirely sure. But he certainly was there when the tomb was first opened. But the thing is that, you know, why is it that everyone else didn't die immediately? Um, Because people say, oh, well, Carter died, but that was, you know, 20 years after the tomb had been opened and, and work had been carried out. And so did all the other people, but many of them just died of old age. So it wasn't really a curse. There are weird beliefs about mummies stretching back in time, even before Boris Karloff. They were occasionally used as uh, medicine, isn't that true? Or that if you, you know, were suffering from some disease, that maybe a pinch of mummy would 
cure you? Oh, yes. Um, from the 14th century onwards, mummies have been used as medicine. And that's because of the mistaken idea that mummies were made using bitumen, which is a sort of pitch-like substance that comes out of the mummy mountain in Persia. And it's supposed to help you have a long life. It's supposed to stop arthritis, and it's supposed to help you with disorders of the blood. So people were thinking that they were getting scrapings of mummy, but sometimes the purveyors of this just ground up mummy powder and sold it. So King Francis I of France used to always carry a little bag of mummy in case he was assassinated and he can use the mummy to counteract the assassination attempt. My goodness, bitumen. I, I think it's used for preserving railroad ties. But... Yep, roads, <laughs> asphalt. I'm not sure about the medicinal properties of that. Well, many of us have seen mummies in the local museum, or if we've been lucky enough to go to Cairo, we've seen them there. When did the Egyptians stop mummifying things? I mean, obviously they did. They don't do it today. Well, it went on into the early Christian period in Egypt, so I think it probably finally stopped in the 4th or 5th century AD, although probably some of the Coptic Christian fathers, the revered monks or bishops, were getting uh, mummified as well. Well, finally, Salima, I've been to the Valley of the Kings, and I saw several uh, crypts there that were labeled uh, Seth 1 or Seti 1 <laughs> and 2. Are, are these my namesakes? I mean, should I be pleased that they're there? Well, um, I was very excited when I found out what your name was because it is an ancient Egyptian name. Seth was the god who was sort of a balance between Horus and Seth. He was the god of the desert, god of storms, and protecting Egypt against foreigners. So you have a very good ancient Egyptian pedigree. I wonder if it's going to affect my bank account. (laughs) Good luck. We get a cut, I hope. Salima Ikram, thank you so very much for talking with us. A pleasure. Salima Ikram is a professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo. So there was a god named Seth, and he was uh, the god of the desert, which is where you get your dry wit. Uh, Well, it's where I get my thirst, yes. Of storms. Yeah. I don't have anything for you there. Uh, And of protecting Egypt against foreigners. And you you do work in the business of watching out for alien, possible alien invasion. I guess I was the ancient defense minister, yeah. If anyone knows how Seth resembles the Seth who was god of storms, you could write it on our Facebook page. Well, I I like the idea of being associated with this big job description, these divine powers, but it's all just superstition. On the other hand, we like superstition, and we'll find out why next. But first, I have to do my lucky hand clap here. I've never heard you do that hand clap before. Yeah, well, it's usually silent. It's Mummy Dearest on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, And it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, curses are just good fun. I mean, who wouldn't want to be able to put a curse on some of the people we have to deal with every day? Well, there's an interesting theory that's been used to explain the mummy's curse, and you might find it in a medical journal. Pathogens lying in wait in the tomb, dead bodies, their unwitting hosts, might infect a visitor. And that seems reasonable. After all, Lord Carnarvon died of a disease. But the theory looks different under the microscope, says epidemiologist D. Wolf Miller. We reached him in Cairo. The wolf, the mummy's curse. Not so bad for the mummies, but bad for anyone who disturbs their eternal slumber. It's true that after Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon opened up King Tut's sarcophagus, some people did die. Could could a weird organism in that tomb have been responsible? Well, I've been in that tomb many times, and I'm so far, I guess I'm just lucky. <laughs> well, are, are you doubtful then about a pathogen? I have told so many people that at the time that Lord Carnarvon was in that tomb, that tomb had been sealed for 3,000 years. And given the sanitary conditions of Upper Egypt in the 1930s, this was just about the safest place he could be. It was, it was essentially sterile. 
Well, I mean, bodies do decay, even mummified bodies. I'm sure they decayed too. And decay, to me, just means that microorganisms are feasting on your vital juices or whatever's left of you. So, so wouldn't there have been some bacteria or something in there originally? That lived 3,000 years? Uh, let me put it this way. You've made a mistake by saying that mummies decay. I mean, the reason that we have mummies is because they didn't, because the mummification worked. And the reason that the mummification works, it keeps the bacteria from decaying them. So even 3,000 years ago, King Tut would have been pretty much uh, microbe-free? Absolutely. What about the possibility of spores? Some bacteria, of course, can go into spore form. And and we know from other studies that these spores can stay viable for, well, certainly thousands of years and maybe much longer. Okay. Um, The possibility that Lord Carnarvon contracted some infectious disease by going into that tomb is, I have to restrain myself here a little (laughs) bit. It's just outlandish. (laughs) That's all I can say. It's just epidemiologically hard to make it biologically sensible. That's not what the curse of the mummies is about. The curse is a curse. It doesn't have to have a biological explanation. In fact, the curse is a supernatural curse. It has nothing to do with microbiology. Have researchers learned anything about disease from studying the mummies? Well, uh, medical science, the epidemiologists included, Diseases in ancient populations, like the Egyptian populations of ancient Egypt, of course, this is fascinating. We know now that there was tuberculosis, malaria, parasitic diseases that occurred in ancient Egypt, and that alone is just fascinating. Well, you mentioned malaria. What sorts of diseases would have been important in King Tut's day? I mean, pretty much the same as in contemporary Egypt, or was there a different slew of things? Well, there's this one pathogen that just seems to be the pathogen of all time, and that's tuberculosis. It was a pathogen then, and it's a pathogen today. It's not like, say, plague that burned itself out in the Middle Ages. It's just been a terrifically successful pathogen. You can see it in statues that they made in ancient Egypt. You can see it in, also in the CAT scans that we made, and they've also recovered DNA from this pathogen from mummies. So tuberculosis, is, and of course there was many other kinds of infectious diseases that they had at that time. When you say you can see it in the statuary, how do you mean? Can you see deformities depicted in the statuary that there's are typical? There's a particular form of, of spinal tuberculosis that's called Potter's disease. And if you walk into the museum, Cairo Museum, take a left, go down a couple of cases, you'll see a small statue, among other statues, in a glass case. And it's a statue of, of, a, of a man, and he has this huge hump on his left shoulder, and it's just classic Potter's disease. So it's pretty conclusive evidence that this was a common pathogen in ancient Egypt. Well, what about King Tut himself? Do we have any idea why he died? Yeah, we cat scanned him. He broke his leg. And how did that kill him? Well, well okay, so this was a, a fracture, an open fracture in his femur. Okay, now your femur is the biggest bone in your body. And 3,000 years ago, if you make a complete open fracture of your femur, it's very serious injury. Uh, you could die from shock, from a blood clot, from infection. There's just so many different ways. And they just had no way to manage that kind of injury in, in that time. Well, D. Wolf Miller, thank you very much for talking with us. No, it's a pleasure. D. Wolf Miller is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. He has spent much of his career in Egypt, which is where we reached him. By the way, Molly, did you know that Lord Carnarvon was actually born and grew up in High Clear Castle, which is the place where they shoot the well-known television series Downton Abbey? So that is the actual house that he was born in? Yep, that's it. You see it every week. But in any case, it sounds as if the mummies would have a hard time giving you a hard time, but there are people who believe in the mummy's curse anyway. But, of course, there are all sorts of other beliefs floating around about evil spirits or malevolent energy. It's a truly impressive amount of floating pleasure. Now, there's good reason for this, says psychologist Stuart Vise. Being superstitious may just have survival value. His book, Believing in Magic, The Psychology of Superstition. And he notes that a big motivator in these beliefs is the fear of death. 
fear of death is a major force in superstition. You know, it it is it is a uh, one of the reasons why we have particularly the the taboo, the negative superstitions, like you know, stepping on cracks, uh, black cats, ladders, etc. Uh, and so, so coping with that fear is a, a major aspect of of many superstitions. So, you know, we understand a lot about the natural world that we didn't 500 years ago or even in the time of Howard Carter. And, and yet superstitions aren't uh, less common today than they were, are they? I think, if anything, they may be a little bit more common today than they have been in the recent past, uh, largely because of so much of the publicity. Uh, there are so many television shows now having to do with the paranormal and movies uh, so I think they're just as popular as as ever, and and of course the reasons why we are superstitious in the first place have not gone away. You know, despite our understanding of the natural world and and our great technology, many important things in our lives are unpredictable. Whether we'll fall in love or not, whether our marriage will last, whether our children will be healthy there's still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and and as a result, when you can't make the thing you want appear uh, at will, then you may try other things just to get a sense of having done something positive to avoid a calamitous outcome. Uh, some of the superstitions that I can think of, and, and maybe you can give me some examples here, but they, they just seem to be about killing time, you know, just some sort of ritual that that you do every time, I don't know, you're up at bat or something like right. that if you're a baseball player, right? I mean, so so what's the deal there? I mean, they're just kind of time wasters, like twiddling my thumbs. Well, those those longer rituals often have to do with being trapped in a situation that is kind of anxious. You're you're uh, waiting to perform or waiting to take an exam or waiting to play a game, and the stakes are high. You care a lot about the outcome, and yet there's nothing you can really do to fill the time to that will actually help your performance. So many performers often establish a kind of ritual, and in some cases they give that ritual a kind of magical significance uh, and feel like if they don't step onto stage with their right foot or if they don't uh, wear their underwear backwards or whatever the particular thing is, that they will do badly uh, in the outcome. And and the very doing of the ritual has a kind of mantra-like calming effect. It, it is a way of dealing with anxiety, and whether you give it magical significance or not. But many people who are prone to superstition will will sort of turn it into a magical incantation. Are there some uh, rituals that uh, you know of that are particularly impressive for being, I don't know, somewhat odd? Well, the one that I write about in my book is uh, is Wade Boggs, a former uh, Yankee third baseman, also played for the Red Sox, who had something like a three-hour-long ritual that he would perform before each game. And he also is very famous for believing that eating chicken before the game, you know, made him perform better. He was a very good hitter. He was he was elected into the Hall of Fame on the first ballot. And uh, he he believed that eating chicken gave him hits, and he ate chicken before every single game for his entire career. While I can understand superstition, I mean, I can understand our brains trying to make sense of situations that may not have any obvious sense, I'm less clear on what the survival value is. I mean, a, a baseball player who eats chicken before every game, we, we don't have a controlled experiment where, you know, half the games he didn't eat chicken and did he perform poor. But but really, is there any clear answer to why this trait evolved, why we seem to have superstition? I, th- I think there's a, a real clear answer to why we have it. And there's also an, a separate answer having to do with whether it actually works in, in any real sense. Um, but, but to begin with, I think that at its core, superstition is finding relationships, is, is uh, being able to see patterns. Obviously, some of them are not real patterns. They're not causal in the way we think. But, but we have a tremendous talent and ability, and that has, I'm sure, been very important to our survival to be able to recognize the relationships between events and and to learn from those um, that we overdo it sometimes and see 
causal relationships that aren't really there is probably a side effect of that great talent. Furthermore, now I think there is evidence that being superstitious in a situation of skilled performance uh, where you're like an athlete can have a positive effect. There's a study that was done in Germany in 2010 uh, that was quite wonderful in that it showed that when invited into the laboratory to putt a golf ball across a carpet, uh, if, if the participant in the study was told that that ball that they were about to use had been lucky that day, then those people in that group performed significantly better, actually putted better as opposed to a group where they were simply handed the ball and said, here's your ball. So these were participants who in general believed in luck. They, they had it as a belief, but, but this simple manipulation ignited it and actually affected their performance. And they, these researchers replicated that on, on several occasions. So, I mean, we've long suspected that it might help with performance in a skilled activity. Now, it's not going to help you at the roulette wheel, and it's not necessarily going to help you avoiding disease or the, the fearful things that we normally worry about. But, but in that one circumstance where you are preparing to perform a skilled thing, then, then it might help. The thought is father to the deed. Stuart Vise, thank you so very much for talking with us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Stuart Vise is professor of psychology at Connecticut College in New London, Connecticut. He's the author of Believing in Magic, The Psychology of Superstition. We thank the Daddy of All production teams for this Mummy Show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check, Mummy Dearest. You can find more Skeptic Check and more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, you can go to Facebook, become a fan of the program, and leave us a comment. If you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because you just love having E&M fields enveloping your body, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Hang on, this just in. The discovery of an ancient recording of an actual mummy's curse. This linen wrapping is so itchy and tight. Somebody get me a pair of scissors. I can't even walk. God, just stub my toe. And where's my cappuccino? Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.